sermon text today, then we can turn to Genesis chapter 5. Genesis chapter 5. We've been preaching, I've been preaching through the book of Genesis. And in chapter 4, we saw uh, the uh, children of Adam and Eve, uh, Cain and Abel, and then Seth, and how uh, two groups began to develop. The uh, one group taking after Cain, um, which we find expressed especially seven generations down in Lamech, um, but also how in the line of Seth, a people began to call upon the name of the Lord. And so now uh, chapter 5 will take us further into this time up into the days of Noah. So listen then to the reading of chapter 5 of Genesis. This is the book of the generations of Adam. When God created man, he made him in the likeness of God. Male and female, he created them, and he blessed them and named them man when they were created. When Adam had lived 130 years, he fathered a son in his own likeness after his image and named him Seth. The days of Adam after he fathered Seth were 800 years, and he had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days that Adam lived were 930 years, and he died. When Seth had lived 105 years, he fathered Enosh. Seth lived after he fathered Enosh 807 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus, all the days of Seth were 912 years, and he died. When Enosh had lived 90 years, he fathered Canaan. Uh, Enosh lived after he fathered Canaan 815 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enosh were 905 years, and he died. When Canaan had lived 70 years, he fathered Mahalalel. Canaan lived after he fathered Mahalalel 840 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Canaan were 910 years, and he died. When Mahalalel had lived 65 years, he had fathered Jared. Mahalalel lived after he fathered Jared 830 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus the days of Mahalalel were 895 years, and he died. When Jared had lived 162 years, he fathered Enoch. Jared lived after he fathered Enoch 800 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Jared were 962 years, and he died. When Enoch had lived 65 years, he fathered Methuselah. Enoch walked with God after he fathered Methuselah 300 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Enoch were 365 years. Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. When Methuselah had lived 187 years, he fathered Lamech. Methuselah lived after he fathered Lamech sorry, 782 years, and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Methuselah were 969 years, and he died. When Lamech had lived 182 years, he fathered a son and called his name Noah, saying, Out of the ground that the Lord has cursed, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands. Lamech lived after he fathered Noah 595 years and had other sons and daughters. Thus all the days of Lamech were 777 years, and he died. After Noah was 500 years old, Noah fathered Shem, Ham, and Japheth. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. 
Let us pray for God's blessing upon his word. Lord God, we thank you for uh, the words that you have given us, the revelation of your deeds and glory, the way of salvation uh, through faith. We pray that you would uh, strengthen us through your word to give us understanding by it. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This chapter, as well as the first eight verses of the next chapter, so chapter 5 into chapter 6, verse 8, uh, comprise a section which is introduced here by, uh, this is the book of the generations of Adam. Uh, As I've mentioned before, the book of Genesis is structured by ten such sections that are introduced by uh, the phrase, these are the generations. We saw the earlier one that these are the generations of heavens and the earth when they were created. And the phrase basically means this is what became of them. This is what became of Adam. Uh, And it usually will talk about uh, perhaps his life or his descendants, uh, what resulted from this. Uh, The next one's going to be these are the generations of Noah. So this uh, section takes us from Adam uh, to Noah. Uh, Tracing the history of the pre-flood world, some... uh, what's sometimes called the antediluvian world, which just means pre-flood, or we might call it the primeval world, that is, the the first age of the earth. Before I get into perhaps the main point here, you know, there are a couple questions about this part of the Bible that could come to mind. One that I hadn't addressed, I don't think, earlier, um, but it's a typical question out there. Where did Cain and Seth get their wives? You know, if Adam and Eve were... The, the first humans, and these were their sons. Uh, the answer is that because of the unique circumstances at that time, because they were the only humans around, uh, and because they doubtless had better genetics at the time, marriage to sisters was initially allowed by God, but then forbidden later. Um, as Genesis 5-4 says, Adam and Eve had other sons and daughters. So, It mentions Cain and Abel and Seth, but that doesn't mean that those were the only children of Adam. He certainly lived a very long life and uh, doubtless had many other sons and daughters that began to populate the earth. Another question might be, what's up with these really long lives? Uh, These people live a very long time. Not quite to to a thousand years, but some of them get pretty close. This was also God's mercy to the human race as it began. Uh, Think about it, if people didn't die for a long time, the population would increase much quicker. It would also help to uh, ensure continuity from generation to generation, passing on accumulated knowledge. Um, That would be a blessing as well. Again, better genetics probably contributed to these long lives, but however... Whatever means God used, uh, they had longer lives before the flood. But the main point here probably is that despite their long lives, they still died. Um, And despite their long lives, many um, did not repent. The Bible's claims uh, about these long lives are actually more moderate than other ancient claims. Other nations had stories of ancient people that lived very long time. Uh, The Sumerians, for example, claimed that there were kings before the flood whose reigns lasted for tens of thousands of years. And that was just their reigns, not even their lifespans. 
Um, it's easy to see these Sumerian claims as legendary exaggeration or perhaps even misunderstanding of what truly were longer lives than normal. Uh, and to see the biblical claims as the, uh, the, the accurate, the historical ones. Uh, last question here uh, before we dive in. Uh, does the Bible present Adam as a historical figure? Uh, perhaps that might already have been clear from the earlier chapters, but the genealogies here in Genesis uh, serve to confirm it. Uh, Adam's not simply an isolated story or parable that's said at the beginning of the Bible, but by these genealogies, he's linked with everyone else that comes after him as our first father. Um, in fact, all the people described in this particular uh, genealogy we are descended from uh, because uh, Noah is the one that comes at the end of this line. But in any, any case, Adam is linked together with the rest of history as our father. And so Moses, in writing Genesis and Exodus, uh, wrote a history from the creation up into his own day. Uh, he even provides a chronology within these genealogies. Most genealogies don't say at what age, you know, so-and-so begat so-and-so. Uh, but that is true in Genesis 5 and 11. While there are points uh, in uh, biblical chronology that uh, do have debates about how best to interpret it, um, the Bible puts the age of the earth somewhere between 6,000 and 7,500 years old. Of course, that's not the standard chronology you'll find in maybe a, a typical history textbook. Uh, but the old earth chronology that would put it at, you know, millions or billions of years old is based on uniformitarian assumptions, the assumption that things have always kind of been the same. You know, a worldwide flood would certainly disrupt that uh, calculation. And then also an evolutionary theory, uh, which uh, is also a, a lens of interpretation that would uh, distort the interpretation of the facts. Furthermore, archaeology... Uh, which, you know, might look back at the ancient Egyptians and others, it gets more tentative and more proximate the further you go back in time. Instead of saying, give or take a year or two, you start saying, give or take a hundred years or two um, as you go further and further back. Now, as we go to this text, and what is it primarily supposed to be teaching us? Uh, I think there's one phrase that stands out in this genealogy, um, that stands out because it's not necessary. This is the only genealogy to include this phrase, and yet it is repeated again and again, with one notable exception, and the phrase is, and he died. Adam lived this many years, and he died. Seth lived so many years, and he died. Enosh lived so many years, and he died. And he died, and he died, and he died. You get the point? This guy, he died too. And he died. The, the point is that the curse, which we saw in chapter 3, echoed down through the generations with this constant refrain, and he died. Who died? That might be the first major question here, which is answered by the text itself. It is mankind made in the likeness of God. We have a little recap of the creation in verses 1 through 2 that describe who it is that's dying here. This is man who is made uh, as the image and likeness of God, who was granted dominion, who was granted great honor and glory, uh, being set over his creation um, to, to work it, to subdue it, to multiply in it. 
We see in, at the beginning of verse 1 that man was made in the likeness of God. And we had said earlier, that means that man was made to resemble God. Uh, he resembles God not bodily, but resembles God in knowledge, in righteousness, in holiness. He's a, a rational creature, a moral creature, a religious creature. And uh, with the dominion, which was like God's um, over the work of God's hands. He is also, though, uh, designed to represent God on earth. Uh, that he would be like a statue or an image in the way that a statue or an image would represent the king, would, would assert his sovereignty, which would declare his glory. Similarly, man would represent God on earth. Uh, and that would be his, his function, to give glory to his maker, to be his vice regent, his representative on earth. So man was made in the likeness of God. It also says that male and female, he created them. Mankind was made, male and female. Uh, God made first the man, and then from him, uh, the woman. And so humanity is composed of two distinct and complementary sexes. Uh, They come together as one flesh in marriage uh, by God's design, that he designed this as he designed humanity at the same time. A man and woman are equal in value before God. They are both made in the likeness of God. They are both given the creation mandate. They have the same goal, the same mission, Uh, but they were designed differently, different times. Man was made from the ground. He was named after the ground, Adam, after Adama, and he was made to work the ground. The woman was made from the man, was named after the man, Isha, after Ish, and was made to be a help for the man. And I think I've said that before, but they had a different uh, design, different orientation. The ultimate end for both of them was the creation mandate and the glory of God. Uh, But the man found the task and therefore received a beloved helper, whereas the woman found the man and therefore received this task. Uh, The creation order here is the basis for the more particular duties in uh, the Bible prescribes in the family, in the church, and in society that is based upon this more general principles found in creation. They are distinct, and this distinction is good and is designed for harmony and mutual appreciation of, of both. We also find in this text that God blessed them. Don't skip over that. And we're going to hear lots about curse, but it began with blessing. God didn't wait for Adam and Eve to, you know, really prove themselves to him before he blessed them. He was very generous with them from the beginning. He endowed them with powers and abilities and privileges and uh, did so before they had the chance to earn anything. Uh, They only needed to continue in obedience to God uh, to remain blessed and to even increase in blessing. And then finally, we see here that he named them man when they were created. The word there for man is is actually the word Adam. He named them Adam, both of them Adam, although one of them was named Adam. In another sense, both were named Adam because Adam, which means man, uh, represented the human race. Uh, He was our head. Uh, He was our representative. And so God made his covenant with humanity in the person of Adam, uh, telling Adam, Uh, to not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And it's with 
Adam's fall that we sinned all. Uh, it is with Adam as the head of the human race. Now, the following verses also describe that not only do we see that, you know, chapter 1, 26 to 28, that creation mandate, uh, you know, being represented here, but that also the uh, chapter 3, verses 14 through 19, where God spoke to the serpent and spoke to the woman and spoke to the man, that those things proved true as well. That despite sin, man continued to have children, uh, to, to father and to beget and to have multiple generations come forth from him. And that mankind in his fallen estate also continues to live for a time, that he eats bread, but he labors under the curse uh, in, in pain and then dies. Even at the end of this, Lamech mentions the curse of the ground and the painful toil of our hands, and they experience that for centuries, each one of them. You might think it would be great to live for 900-something years, but uh, I'm not sure. (laughs) They would have experienced uh, much difficulty and pain in those years as well. Certainly, Life is good. It's good to have, uh, but it wasn't a bed of roses. Verse 3 describes how Adam's likeness was passed on to his son. Like father, like son. He bore a son in his image, which explains to us what it means for us to be made in God's image. That's the relation of father to son is an analogy for what it meant for man to be made in God's image. Um, the son resembles his father. The son represents his father, even more so in an ancient household where the son might uh, represent his father and bear authority under him. Uh, likewise, mankind was created to resemble God and rule on God's behalf in his stead. But when Adam passed on this image to his son, it was no longer the pristine image of God. It was still the image of God, but spoiled by sin. His nature had been twisted by sin, and his children would resemble him, like father, like son, uh, sinful and mortal. We are now sinners by nature, uh, conceived in sin. As Jesus said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. Um, Natural power is no ability to regenerate, to to, uh, create something new. Um, That would take supernatural grace. As Genesis 8 will say, the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. As 1 Corinthians 15, 49 says, that we have borne the image of the man of dust. But of course it goes on. It, just, it says, just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. We have fallen in Adam. But the likeness of God is restored through the second or the last Adam, through Jesus Christ. Now, the doctrine of the image of God, it shows us who we are and what we're supposed to do. If you learn that a rock is a statue, you know what it is and what it's supposed to do. Uh, it, it's, it's a representation of something and it's supposed to look like it. If it gets defaced, it's still a statue, it just doesn't fulfill its purpose very well. It needs restoration. And likewise, mankind is a glorious ruin, or a ruinous glory, ruined glory. It had high beginnings, 
which makes its present corruption all the more uh, disgraceful and tragic. And so, as we find in this chapter, mankind is subject to death. Mankind, the image of God, is now ruled over by death. Death shall be their shepherd, as Psalm 49 says. Man was not made to die. Man was not made to fall, to become mortal or corruptible, but that is his condition now. He was brought out of the dust to be God's image and glory, but now he is laid low in the dust, and to dust he returns. His connection to God, his connection to other people, his connection to the earth, his connection to himself uh, is lost or is being lost as things fall apart. This is death. Man's life is like a vapor. It is here for a little while, and then it is gone. Or the Bible says man is like grass, which is renewed in the morning, but in the evening it fades and withers. Whatever riches and glory man may obtain in this life is yet left in the end. You cannot take them with you. Death will take it all away. The glory of fallen man is terribly fragile. Man in his pomp, yet without understanding, is like the beasts that perish. And apart from God's grace, there is no rest in death. Death remains in power over those who have fallen. Mankind cannot escape the curse merely by dying. For the believer, there is great comfort in death. But apart from God's grace, it is not the end of toil. Death remains in power. The wrath of God remains on him, and he is subject to everlasting death. Even when the dead shall rise, those who remain under the sentence of death shall experience the second death and judgment. And there'll be more death. Sinners are unable to break the bonds of death, unable to escape death. What man can give a ransom for his life? He cannot. The power of death is stronger than man because the death is the sentence of God's law upon those who violate that law. And that is like iron. The wages of sin is death. And so he died. And so he died. And so he died. Man is conceived in sin under the sentence of death and made liable to death at any time. Every man is on death row. Creation has become subject to futility and corruption. It should be easy to think about this time of year where people are decorating their homes with skeletons uh, in preparation for Halloween. I'm not saying you should do so, but uh, death is around us. Uh, One time where that is not uh, suppressed. By nature, we are sinners and mortal. We have fallen from glory to disgrace, from blessing to painful curse, from dominion to the dust. And so these ancient fathers bore the image of Adam, and like him, they died. But these men in this line were a little different than all of mankind. These men died in hope. This was the line of Seth, the people that called upon the name of the Lord, who preserved true religion even to the days of Noah. God had given a promise of deliverance through the offspring of the woman. 
the one who had crushed the serpent's head, the one who had introduced death through rebellion. God had shown in the case of Abel that his wrath and his curse would be removed from those who drew near to him in faith. He had regard for Abel and for his offering, that it was possible for sinners to come back to God and to be blessed by God. He would bless those who sought him, not on the basis of their works, but on the basis of his grace. So a people believed in God and looked to him for salvation uh, from the serpent, from sin, and from death. And so even in these early days, they had hope, a hope sustained by faith in the promise of God, hope that looked beyond the grave. And that brings us to the major exception in this chapter. And he died, as at the end of each person here, except for Enoch. Who didn't die is the second question here. Who died? It was mankind, the man made in the image of God. But who didn't die? Enoch. Enoch who walked with God. Enoch did not see death. By taking him, God gave humanity a sign of a deliverance from death. That death was not all-powerful. That there was an escape from death through his grace. It was a sign of the resurrection to come. At this midpoint through this time period, when you calculate it out, you know, Adam had died not too long earlier, relatively speaking, about halfway between creation and and the flood. There would be a great and miraculous sign as Enoch, who had walked with God, was taken and was not found, for God had taken him to himself. By this miraculous demonstration, God showed his intention for his people. And in this way, people were taught to believe in him who could deliver people from the power of death. Now, Enoch was an exemplary member of a faithful line. Faithfulness in this line is indicated also, of course, by the end of chapter 4. talks about how people began to call upon the name of the Lord. Also by Mahalalel's name, which means praise of God. Um, Also, we find Lamech expressing a believing hope in the promise of uh, an offspring through which God would save his people from the curse when he named Noah. And of course, we find the faith and obedience of Noah. We'll find that in the next chapter. But Enoch is marked out for distinction as one who walked with God. Now, this phrase, of course, was used early in chapter 3. God walked in the garden in the cool of the day. He walked with Adam and Eve, although on that occasion they ran from him. Uh, But uh, he made his presence known there in Eden. Noah also will be described as one who walked with God. Uh, Later in Malachi, the phrase will appear as the, the ideal priest who would walk with God in peace and uprightness and who would teach rightly his word. Uh, Enoch listened to God's word. He walked in his ways. He held fast to God rather than the evil customs around him. Enoch dwelt in fellowship with God and prayerful devotion. He enjoyed God's favor for who could walk with God while God was at odds with him. Consider the analogy of walking together. You know, God is... uh, It's not like he was a man who literally walked along a path with Enoch. This is a metaphor, but it's teaching us something truly about his relationship with God. 
When you walk together with each other, that that shows that you uh, have a fellowship with one another, that there is a certain friendship or trust uh, with one another or or something in common. It indicates a common direction, a common way that you're going. Um, It might be very simple if you're just walking down the street that you're both going to some restaurant or you're both going to the park, but when we're talking about walking with God, uh, that is very meaningful uh, to be going in his ways and doing so with him, to have drawn near to God and to have fellowship with him. In fact, the Greek translation of the Old Testament will translate he walked with God as uh, he pleased God or that he was pleasing to God. And Hebrews picks that up uh, because it's uh, indeed implied by the idea that he walked with God, that he was pleasing to God. And the only way to be, for a sinner to be pleasing with God is by faith faith in his promise. Now, the phrase here also, you know, being specifically Enoch, you know, why is he uh, targeted and and this said about him in particular, uh, could imply that like Moses, he even spoke with God as a prophet, just as God revealed his will to Noah as well, who is said to have walked with God. And the idea of Enoch as a prophet was uh, preserved in Jewish tradition, and it's also found in the epistle of Jude, Jude 14 through 15. Uh, There it says, It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way, and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. So Enoch prophesied of coming judgment, of a reckoning uh, upon the ungodly, that the Lord would come, that there would be a, a, uh, things would not always continue as they were, that he would fulfill his word, and things would come to a head. Now, when Jude quoting this, um, these words are very similar to a portion of the so-called Book of Enoch, which was written closer to Christ's time than to Enoch's time. Uh, It was kind of a piece of historical fiction. Um, And by quoting it, it does not mean that the so-called Book of Enoch is a reliable historical account. In some ways, it's like if I quoted a line from the modern movie Noah starring Russell Crowe on a particular part of the story maybe that I got right, that wouldn't mean that the movie is a reliable historical account of the story of Noah. Um, similarly here with Enoch. But uh, he was one who walked with God, uh, who stood for God, who witnessed uh, and spoke for God in that day. His people have n- not been uh, left in the dark. You know, even in a day before they had Scripture written, as we have it today, God revealed his will in many ways uh, through the prophets. Hebrews talks about Enoch, as I've said already. It says that by faith Enoch was taken up so that he should not see death, and he was not found because God had taken him. Now before he was taken, he was commended as having pleased God. So Enoch did not see death. He was taken. That's the same word as used in 2 Kings, where we have the other occasion of someone taken directly to God without seeing death. That was Elijah, uh, who was taken up in the chariots of fire, that he was taken uh, by God. This would have vindicated Enoch's manner of life and prophecy, 
Many of the prophets would have something vindicate them and prove them to be a true prophet, and this certainly would have been significant. That's a sign that indeed he had pleased God. To say that Enoch walked with God is to say that God was pleased with him. And like I said, that is by faith. God took him to show everyone that believing Enoch was pleasing to God, that this was the way. But this also was a precursor to the resurrection, that there was an escape from death, uh, that those who believed in God would find deliverance from death. And that would be the hope of God's people, not only in the New Testament, but even in the Old. This same word for take or to receive is used in Psalm 49 and 73. And 49, but God will ransom my, pow- my soul from the power of Sheol, for he will receive me. There was a hope in the deliverance from death, even in the Old Testament. Psalm 73 speaks to God, you guide me with your counsel, and afterward you will receive me to glory. And so we today have all the more reason to believe in this hope of coming glory, of everlasting life, of resurrection and restoration and glorification, because we not only have Enoch who has been taken up to heaven, but we have the Lord Jesus Christ who himself rose out of death. He did see death. He was under the dominion of death and yet came out of it, coming out of the grave, throwing aside all of his enemies, ascending to heaven in glory sitting at the right hand of God the Father as the firstfruits from the dead, as the one who will bring us from the dead into glory. He is our hope, the one in whom even Enoch believed, the promised one. It wasn't terribly long, relatively speaking, after Enoch's being taken, that his grandson Lamech expressed faith when he named his son Noah, perhaps being encouraged by what had happened to his grandfather. He named his son Noah um, relief or rest, saying, out of the ground or because of the ground that the Lord has cursed, uh, this one shall bring us relief from our work and from the painful toil of our hands, that there would be Uh, through him, or perhaps even through his offspring, and uh, relief and rest. Something that's probably initially a reference to the flood, that he uh, indeed found rest and salvation in the midst of curse and judgment, uh, but more to the point, pointing to the one who would come from Noah, the Lord Jesus Christ, who would bring us relief, some of which we are even waiting for even yet as we look to the age to come. Note also that this Lamech is different than the Lamech in chapter 4. Cain has an Enoch and a Lamech, which is different than Seth's descendants, Enoch and Lamech. Um, Lamech in chapter 4 was violent and boastful. It was an expression of the ways of Cain uh, continuing to culminate as violence filled the earth. Uh, But this Lamech, the the ninth from uh, on Seth's side, Uh, was rather one who took seriously the curse upon them and looked to God's uh, provision of redemption through the promised offspring. And so in summary, and we find in this chapter um, the basic flow of the gospel. It mentions creation, how God created man and he made him upright 
made things good. It describes uh, the fall, that a, a uh, man became liable to death through sin and is now in need of salvation by a Redeemer, unable to escape this, and yet that there is a way of escape, uh, an escape from condemnation and death uh, through faith, uh, a way of reconciliation with God, of walking with God, which is demonstrated here uh, by Enoch. And finally, that there is a restoration, there is a glorification that awaits us, a relief and resurrection unto God. And so these four points, creation, fall, res- uh, redemption, restoration, uh, is uh, the gospel, is this the story of redemption that the Bible presents from beginning to end. Now, what does it mean for us? How are we ought to therefore live in light of this passage? Just uh, relatively briefly, the first lesson is that of faith. As Hebrews says, faith is confidence in things hoped for, a conviction regarding things unseen. These people walked in faith, not by sight. Uh, And so it is for us. When faith is required, endurance is required. Uh, We are looking to something that we do not yet see or that we do not yet uh, fully possess. We ought to place faith in God and His promises. Not that faith is the one really good work that impresses God, but because faith rests upon His promises and receives them. It is by faith that we draw near to God. It is by faith that you endure with God. Faith in Christ. Faith in His promise. Secondly, walk with God. Imitate Enoch in walking with God. Even though there might be others around you with uh, evil customs, do not walk in the counsel of the wicked, but walk with God to draw near to Him by faith and to walk in His ways. You might not be a prophet. You know, I, I, I doubt it. <laughs> you know, we do not have prophets in the way that they had in old, but we still have His Word. In fact, we have His Word written down for us now that we can listen to His Word, read His Word. If you want it audible, then have someone read it to you. You know, we can have God's Word and study it, meditate upon it, His Spirit working through that Word, and then to pray to Him, to speak to Him, to cultivate that fellowship as you then uh, walk in His ways. Enjoy the access that you possess through faith, that you might draw near to God and find help in time of need. Learn also the lesson of endurance. Even if the world around you spurns the goodness of God and makes rebellion customary, be steadfast. God does not fulfill all His promises right away. We find that in the lives of these ancient saints. You need to keep your eye fixed on the goal, on the end of the race, that you may not grow weary. Take these ancient saints who endured for centuries as an example. We might find it difficult to remain steadfast and to fix our eyes confidently for decades. They did it for centuries with much less support than we have today. Take them as examples of endurance, looking to the hope that is set before you. And finally, witness. Make known the gospel, the only hope for mankind. Imitate Enoch in this as well, and standing fast as a witness to the hope that God has given uh, a creation which has fallen. Explain creation, fall, redemption, restoration. 
to your neighbor, to your family member, uh, to those who uh, labor under the pain of the curse. There's several reasons why this time of year is especially, you know, has some advantages for sharing the gospel. First of all, there's all the discussion of death and uh, supernatural and connected with uh, the celebration of Halloween, whether or not you celebrate it or not, people are talking about it, and it should be easy to pick up on. Uh, also, it's a much nicer weather if you're talking to strangers, whether it's outside or at the park or on your, in your neighborhood. Uh, it's been very pleasant recently, and it's a good time to talk to them, uh, to invite them to the hope of the gospel that is found in his word. Like Enoch and Noah, witness to the truth in your generation. We also have Reformation Day coming up, too, which can easily be a springboard into the hope of the gospel. Not that many people know about it, though. You have to explain it to what it, what it is, and, and then you get into its meaning. You have more reason than they, these ancient saints did to actually seek conversions. We live in the era of Christ's kingdom's worldwide expansion. So even if things look grim, remember the faithful witness in dark days and have all the more reason to hope today. So in summary, death reigns over mankind, but God redeems saints from it. Even in this age, death has lost its sting for believers. For those of faith, death is an entrance into glory and the sowing of a seed which shall rise incorruptible. So hold fast. The race is set before you, is so short compared to the lives that were lived by Enoch and Lamech and Noah. Being surrounded by that cloud of witnesses, run the race with endurance, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. To him be glory, both now and forever. Amen. Let us pray. Dear God, we thank you for the redemption, the salvation that you have provided for us sinners, a way out of the doom which we brought upon ourselves that though we were, as children of Adam, lost and doomed to endless woe, you have sent another man, one who is also God, your own Son, Jesus Christ, to bring us out from the dominion of darkness, out of the dominion of death, and into eternal life and the hope of the age to come. We pray that you would maintain us and to use us as instruments for your glory, uh, even today and upon the earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.